This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Lots going on in this city. Man, oh man. Uh, Super Crawl, uh, another successful event there held, of course, uh, at uh, in the second week of uh, September, right after Labor Day. And of course, lots going on. Lots going on in the hammer. And of course, part of that development is Pier 8. And there has been uh, a competition of sort between a series of designers trying to come up with a design chosen for the Pier 8 Promenade Park. Of course, there's going to be a residential and uh, some commercial down there. But for the actual promenade itself, uh, they've held designs for that, and they've got a winner. So let's bring in Ken Coit, Program Manager, Public Art and Projects in the Tourism and Cultural Division of the City of Hamilton, and with us now. Hello, Ken. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I guess this is a pretty big day for you guys. It is. A lot of work culminates today with the announcement of the winner for this competition, yeah. So tell everybody what this competition, what it, what was, uh, it was all about, what the objective here was. We wanted to get a really innovative, interesting public space along Pier 8. So from about the Hamilton Waterfront Trust to the Sokoa Building around to the Haida, an important public space that all Hamiltonians can be proud of. And we wanted to run through a process that Hamiltonians actually had a voice in helping us make that decision. So this is the promenade portion uh, of the uh, 1,500 or so uh, units, uh, residential units that will be there. This is the public space, the open space. This, this is part of the public space. This is the main public space along the water. So tell us about some of these uh, entries and how difficult this decision was. Well, it wasn't a staff decision. We had a jury of uh, seven uh, experts we brought in that volunteered their time to help us with this. We also ran the six, ex- uh, the six different design proposals by uh, the public, and we gave some of those we gave those comments to the jury to help decide. So we had also we had some very um, uh, open and green parks. We had we had ideas that had a lot of activity. Um, we specifically asked that the um, designs had something to do with the, the heritage, the industrial heritage and the marine heritage of the site. Um, and it's a unique site. It's right at that point along the waterfront where we go from the public and the green space into industrial. So it's a really interesting spot. And we had six really different, diverse um, ways of looking at it. Uh, how much input did the public's opinion, how far did the public's opinion go, and how influential were they on the jury? I guess that's a tough question well, to answer, but yeah, how, how much did their opinion differ from that of the jury? Well, not much, actually. Um, the, the one that was selected was actually one of the, one of the public's top two um, in terms of the ones identified as preferred. We had 276 comments. And, uh, you know, people are very smart here. It's a lot of work to look at through these designs, and the jury was really impressed with the, the level of comments and how, how it helped them understand how people were seeing these designs. So what sort of common things were your, what sort of common responses were you getting from the public? Well, people were really impressed with this one, with all the, the one that won, with all the different activities that can happen, with that it was a pretty bold design. Um, and that it did recall this kind of history because part of the design involves retaining walls that are covered with corten steel. So they have that, it has a very rich kind of rust look to it that kind of recalls Hamilton's industrial past. It's a very interesting design. It's a very cool design, that's for sure. I'm looking at it now. Uh, so at the end of the day, how much do you anticipate this space being used, especially once these units are built? 
oh, I think it'll be a very popular space. And that was one of the, the reasons the jury chose this, because it, it, it defines a bunch of different types of spaces, some up high with views, some down low, different sizes, that the community can use in the future and program with things. And that was part of the objective of the park design. Uh, uh, yoga outside, they've proposed a, a kind of beach area. So the, and, and the public can use this park and change those and use those over time as the, as the community develops down here. What was the objective of the space, Ken? Like, obviously, there are residential units down there, so it's great for them that live there. But you're looking at you're looking at this for more than just that, aren't you? Well, it's, it's a bit of it, of course, it's about that. It's also a kind of main access point for Hamiltonians to walk along the water. So it's for everybody in the city, uh, and it's also it was meant to be a kind of showcase place. This is an important spot on the waterfront, and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the development of Pier Eight. What about the public uh, participation? Were there a lot of people that uh, offered their opinion? About 276. We did a weekend uh, super crawl where we uh, got, we usually, when we do these, we do a lot online and we get majority of them online. But this year was great. We did it at super crawl in the Lister block. And uh, we got more than half of the people coming in and viewing the panels and talking to us and writing it down the good old fashioned way. What a great idea to uh, present this uh, during Lister uh, Block. Any sort of feedback on what was happening there? I mean, it's just, it's the perfect opportunity for that. Oh, uh, Supercrawl was so busy this year, right? It was a a great weekend, and people were really in a good Hamilton mood and wanted to learn about their city and what's going on. So, yeah, it was a perfect location, perfect, perfect weekend for it. So what happens now with this, Ken? How do we move forward? Uh, well, um, hopefully you're going to talk to Scott Torrance, the design, the designer who's here with me down at Pier 8. They're going to be working with city staff to take this preliminary concept design they have and work it through the details and the city standards and come up with construction drawings. It also has to be coordinated with the street construction and the new shore wall construction down here. And hopefully they'll be in a position in the spring to be uh, tendering some of the uh, some of the work and by early 219, mid 219, we'll have a park down here and people have access to the water again. How much change do you anticipate uh, from these drawings that we're looking at now, these images we're looking at now, compared to uh, the final product? Uh, There may be a little. Some of it we asked um, the uh, designers to kind of imagine a bit of the future. We called it flexible programming stuff. Hmm. And um, the design that we've got... um, showed a, a rather large crane-type feature. That'll be a bit smaller in scale. They, they've showed it as a complete build-out. We're going to start smaller with some of that stuff, and some of the program elements may change or move a little bit. But other than that, the, this design had a really strong intent with this kind of uh, marine heritage um, and the scale of it and the way people can move through it. It's really flexible. So we think moving through all the details, we're going to end up with a design that really maintains the integrity of what we had at the beginning with this design off proposal. And all of these uh, proposals had to be on budget, correct? I mean, so that all, this all yeah. fits within the guidelines? Yeah, they all came with cost consultant reports at the beginning, and staff reviewed them and went through them, and we didn't allow them to go forward into the competition if, uh, if staff weren't happy with the, uh, with the construction costing. And were all of them roughly the same uh, price tag? Here? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, all of them. They, that was part of the design competition. The price mm-hmm. is fixed: six million four hundred ninety thousand for construction, and every design had to fit within that budget. So, Ken, what do you anticipate this space being used for? Well, it, it's going to be a great place to come and walk and have your coffee and walk, just like we do now. 
Um, it may even be better because it'll probably be nicer in the winter. Um, it's going to hopefully be programmed with all sorts of different small uses. The uh, proposal that one actually uh, shows a movie night, a, a small screen, uh, outdoor mm-hmm. screen that's part of one of their pavilions. Um, and then there's the possibility for a small cafe in the summer, um, some public art, uh, a, a mural, uh, all sorts of stuff happening. How will this can uh, change or influence other uh, waterfront development? We've certainly seen a lot of changes in the hammer in the last uh, few years, five years or so. Uh, how, how does this change the feeling? How does this change other development that's that's in the works? Well, it's kind of the it it, it sets a high bar and it sets a, sets the tone for the kind of character of the rest of the development as we do other public spaces and and architects and designers come up with new buildings. Uh, it'll make them have to have certain relationships to the park because the park's kind of starting first, uh, and it sets the tone for quality public space for the whole area. And do you think residents will be happy with this down there? I mean, obviously, whenever uh, there's lots of changes and, 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 and newness and, and this sort of thing, turning the corner, uh, some often uh, or some uh, sometimes get left behind. Sometimes uh, they feel left out of the process. What do you th- what's the feedback from a public standpoint on this and the people living in the area? Well, we're, because Pier 8 is a former industrial site, there's not really any, uh, with this park, uh, this is adding green space right, and adding yeah. more public space, right? So we're not really taking anything lot, away. But there's a lot I'm of sure, pe- I'm there's, sure people. There's a lot of people who don't want to see too much change going on down there. Yeah, and that that was kind of not part of the program of, of the competition. We did have people comment to, to that effect in some of the public comments that came in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working with the Direction Council's given us in terms of getting this this part going. And I think in the long run, in, in the short term, for sure, because people uh, during construction, we're going to lose access to our waterfront. I'm down here all the time, and I'm going to miss it during construction. But I think when it's done, people are really going to, to see an improvement in access to the water and really feel that this is now connected and part of the city, and they're going to feel really welcome down here, especially in off-season as well, which is something that doesn't often happen now. Hmm. All right, Ken, if people want to view this, uh, obviously go on the webpage. Where can we see it? Uh, Hamilton.ca slash West Harbor. And on there you will find the jury report that talks about the winner and all the other uh, five proposals. And there's also images of the proposals uh, posted there as well. Ken, uh, looks great. Keep up the great work. Ken Coit has been with us, Program Manager, Public Art and Projects in the Tourism and Culture Division, City of Hamilton, uh, Pier 8, uh, Promenade Park. The winning design has been unveiled. It looks pretty cool. Thanks, Ken, uh, Ken, for the time. Good luck with this moving forward. Okay, thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Just uh, an incredible story, uh, and we're about to hear, and I'm about to introduce you to uh, Noah Irvin. He is a Guelph teen who uh, mailed letters to almost 340 MPs, uh, almost all 340 MPs in Ottawa, only got about 60 responses back, and is seeing some traction on his, ac- on his mission for action on mental health. Uh, and he wants a national suicide prevention strategy. Uh, why is this so important to Noah? We're going to find out. Noah Irvin is with us, Guelph teen fighting for action on mental health. Uh, understand on his way home from Ottawa right now via train, so uh, the signal, we're at their peril. Noah, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Are you still on the train between Ottawa and here? Yeah, I am uh, on the train between Ottawa and Kingston. 
All right, well, at least it's a nice day to be out and watching, uh, you know, Ontario go by on the train. It's not a bad day for that. Uh, tell, not at all. Tell us your story. Uh, tell us your story, Noah, and why is this so important to you? Well, uh, uh, I was five, and she was twenty-four, and then uh, ten years. Ago, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Noah. I, I hate to tell you to tell you to start over again, but your signal just cut out okay. a little bit there. So you start over for us, please. Yeah, so I lost my mom to suicide, and uh, I was five, and she was uh, 24. Hmm. Um, and then uh, about two years after that, I, um, about 10 years after that, I should say, uh, I lost my dad uh, to his battle with uh, mental illness. He died of a prescription drug overdose. Hmm. Uh, and then that's uh, when I really started to, to feel the need to, uh, to demand action by the government. Uh how how do you cope with this as as a teenager? How do you cope with the loss of of both your parents, uh, especially to mental illness? Well, having a, a good family and uh, friends around you uh, helps, and uh, um, just their support really uh, is how you get through it. So, so. Um how much did you know at you were five when when you lost your mother? Is that correct? Yep. Uh, how much did you know? How much could you comprehend about the loss of your mother as a youngster like that? I don't think you really can. Uh, it's a pretty grown up situation. Yeah. I didn't really understand the full context of it until I was about twelve. I uh, just because I don't know how you explain it that to a five year old. I don't think you can. Yeah. Um, so it's really about maturing, and then you understand it. So, how much did you know about your your late father's illness? Um, quite a lot. I mean, he was never um, <clears throat> tested um, for any uh, psychological conditions. I mean, we had assumed it was schizophrenia, but he was never diagnosed. Um, so um, I knew more than I did uh, about his case than I did my mom's case just because of my age. Mm-hmm. What was it that made you decide to become an advocate for this? What, what made you, What put all this emotion for you? Well, I think that uh, in Canada and in Ontario, uh, for 15-year-old children to be losing their parents to something that I believe is completely preventable uh, was the call to action on my part. I think it's a disgrace that 15-year-old children in this country and in this province should have to lose both parents to something that I believe is preventable. Uh, Tell us about your trip to Ottawa. Yeah, so I was invited by... Uh, former Minister of Health, uh, Jane Philpott, uh, to come and to speak with her. And after the cabinet shuffle, uh, uh, Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor uh, reached out, and she's our current <coughs> health minister, and uh, she wanted to meet. And uh, I came up because not many uh, Canadians get meetings with federal cabinet ministers. So hmm. I uh, jumped on it and came up and had a really uh, great discussion. What did you talk about? Uh I talked about the national strategy, yes, uh, and more more talks with provinces and territories, non uh, uh, or NGOs, and um, and as well consulting First Nations and Indigenous groups. But uh, as well, I, I did uh, talk um, about the idea of the of a secretariat in the prime minister's office. Um, that secretariat's job would be at the end of the day to. Uh, coordinate all talks about mental health in the highest government office that we have in Canada, 
and um, she seemed pretty uh, understanding of the idea and, and wanted to look into it further. Do we realize how big, how important this issue is? Like you said, when a teenager shows up at Parliament Hill and said, hey, this isn't right for you know a kid to lose his parents at 15 to mental health, do we realize how important this and how big this issue is? Uh, can you repeat that question? I, do, you, do we realize, you, you talked about uh, going up to uh, Ottawa and, and, and talking to people there. Do we realize how big this issue is? You said it's not right for a 15-year-old kid to lose his parents to mental health. Do we, do we understand the scope, the, how big this problem is? Um, <clears throat> I would say that uh, we as a country don't understand how large it is. Um, our government certainly does not understand it. Um, I think we're becoming more aware, but I, I do think that uh, we don't understand and we don't understand how to deal with it um, as a country, which is a serious issue. What have you learned about, what have you learned since you embarked on this journey of being an advocate for this? What has it taught you? Um, to continue uh, to persevere uh, and to uh, continue to, uh, to fight for what I believe is, is right. Um, and to not give up um, because I think there has been a lot of times along this road that I could have stopped and, and could have um, ceased to advocate but um, I didn't and I, I continued on and uh, uh, and I think that's the main thing why, why and how do you think we got here? Why do you think you even have to do this, Noah? How did we get to this place? Uh, I think... Uh, we got to this point because of government inaction and because the government simply does not and did not care then and doesn't care now. And that's why uh, it was up to me to begin advocating along with many other organizations across the country because we realized that the government simply does not care. Um, and that's, I think, how we got to this point. What do, how, how did leaders react when they heard your story? Um, some tears were definitely shared with uh, the minister, um, but also a lot of support from those who responded to me uh, with my letter because uh, they recognized that this is a serious issue, or at least the ones who responded recognized that it was a serious issue. And how old are you now, Noah? 17. Uh, when did you get serious about this? When did when did you really start to to realize this was your calling and that, and that you wanted to advocate for this? February of this year would have been the the time that I got really involved in this. Was there a turning point? Um, with media attention, the turning point was the lack of response. Um, that's when I decided to really go public and step up the step up my game to to fight. Um, the lack of responses. Um, I hope that answered your question. No, it, it does. And and tell us about this letter that you did send. Uh, you got about sixty responses back. What basically yep. did it? What basically did it say? I had told my personal story um, with dealing with this, and then it also uh, challenged um, MPs and MPPs to to do more in their own communities, <laughs> to to take up the cause, to to understand that this is a serious serious problem in this country and w every day we keep ignoring it it gets worse um so that was that was the main gist of my letter uh do you have siblings noah nope only child 
Um, yeah. Uh, wow. It's just this is an incredible story. Um, what? Where do you see this going? What do you see this as a as a life mission for you? Is this just something you're doing now? Uh, where is this is this directing your life in any way? Uh, <clears throat> I think it steered me towards politics. Um, I hope that uh, that I don't have to continue advocating for mental health um, because I think that uh, I think it should be fixed. I don't think I should have to continue advocating for this into my thirties. I think it should be fixed now. Um, but I think it has steered me towards the angle of government. Um, are you angry at all? Absolutely. I think government uh, needs uh, needs to understand that uh, they can't keep ignoring us. And uh, they can't keep ignoring me because my issues are incredibly important to um, the future of this country. Um, what do you think your parents would say of what you're doing? I think they'd be incredibly proud. Um, a little starstruck, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Good for you. But, uh, um, no, I think they'd be very proud. Uh, what You said that you had the support of great friends and, um, and, and great uh, family members. You know, no other, any kid that has something like this happen to him, I mean, my goodness, it's, it's terribly tragic. Uh, I, I can see people listening to this tearing up and tearing up at your story. And I, oh, hang on a sec here. Oh, oh, we're there? Hang on a sec. Yeah, I'm still here. I know, just hang on. We'll wait till this, uh, the announcement goes by. All right. Uh, no, the question. <laughs> wow, it's a long one. <laughs> we have to hear it in both official languages too. Um, Hi, too. There you go. Okay. <laughs> sorry about that, Noah. Um, um, my question to you is: Obviously, this is a, an incredibly traumatic event to have happened to anyone, especially a teenager. Um, yep. Was there a point where you could have gone one way or the other? Um, you know, th- this would have this would have rendered most kids just you know, uh, uh, motionless, just, you know, uh, left them with nothing to do, left, left, left them yeah. hopeless. <clears throat> How did you keep this going in the right direction? I don't really know. I think, um, my tenacity was what did it. And, um, my upbeat positivity, uh, is what kept me, um, going and kept me on the straight and narrow. But, uh, I don't know how people, uh, other people would deal with it just because it is a very terrible story. I mean, it's not a good story to, to have to tell, but I'm a living proof that you can get through it. So, How do you find happiness? Uh, I love music. Huh. love rock and roll. Yeah. So that's uh, my big thing. Was there music in the family a lot? Yeah, my dad was a big fan of classic rock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. CCR was his band. So how did you leave this in Ottawa? Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure they were glad to have you and loved listening to your story, but how do you get this from lip service to action? Well, I'm going to be speaking with the Prime Minister come Friday. Uh, and He'll get an earful, um, as did the Minister. Um, along with, uh, I, I have other meetings that um, are potentially coming up um, with Senators, so we'll... Um, We'll keep we'll keep hounding them for uh, for answers as to what they're going to do about this. 
So you're having uh, another meeting. Are you having a meeting with uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? That's September 29th. That's not in person. That's on the phone, correct? Yep. Yeah, it's on the phone. And how did this all come about? Was this as a result of what you've done in the groundwork to get to Ottawa? I think uh, the media played a significant role. I've damaged their image greatly. Uh, I've embarrassed them mercilessly by calling them out on their on their lack of commitment and care. Hmm. So, what about feedback from others who may have experienced something similar uh, as you? Any feedback from others who have had to deal with this sort of thing? Um, I've gotten a lot of letters of support with people dealing with the same things and, and continuing to encourage me to uh, keep advocating for them along with future generations of Canadians that will deal with this if it's not fixed. Um, so, What message would you have, Noah, for other people who may have family members who are suffering or maybe suffering themselves the way your parents did? So, well, I would encourage any family members to fight um, like hell because I think they need to because government truly does not care and I think it's time for families to continue to speak up and fight. Um, I know that with me fighting, um, a Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions uh, will be in place in Ontario, and I would encourage everybody to fight um, for their loved ones because it's time that the governments across the country changed their perspective on this and changed uh, the way that we're treating the mentally ill. It's not right. It's uh, and it's um, it's, it's a terrible injustice in our society. And as a as a young teenager, you knew that your father was experiencing some difficulty. You knew he was having some problems. Yep, absolutely. It's it was evident. So, um, you know, we often. Um, well, I've had mem- members of family who have uh, gone down this road. Um, yep. H- how do you stop feeling guilty about it? I don't think you can, really. I, I still feel guilty. I mean, I think one of the things and one of the reasons why I'm slowly losing that guilt is because of my advocacy that I know that I'm doing something for, for my memory. Yeah. So that I'm... So that I'm being with the way I relieve that guilt. Uh, I'm sorry again. No, I'm going to have to get you to repeat that simply because we lost you as you started speaking. Um, no, nah, we're yeah. just in a bad. Um, what Are about? You losing me? Yeah, I'm losing you. Well, you're back now. Uh, what about no. the future? Um, how is this going to change who you become, who you are? I think uh, politics looks promising. You um, really? It, uh, seems, it seems like you got bit. You really got bit by the bug going to Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah. I'm elected. I'll have to do something. Good for you. Well, again, we're, we've got a little issue with the uh, with the phone line, so we'll let you go, uh, Noah. Noah, uh, my goodness, uh, my heart is with you, uh, as I'm sure uh, the listeners feeling the same way. Uh, go get them. Keep digging. Uh, your courage, your support. Uh, is just uh, unbelievable, and uh, I'm sure uh, your parents would be extremely proud of the advocacy you are doing on their behalf. Noah, congratulations. Good luck with this fight. 
And, of course, uh, keep in touch as well as uh, this whole thing uh, plays out. We will certainly be monitoring the story. Uh, Noah Urban is a Guelph teen. He's fighting for action on mental illness. He has lost both of his parents uh, by the time he was 15 to uh, mental illness. Uh, through suicide and uh, literally got on a train, went to Ottawa after writing a series of letters and basically uh, called them to the, to the mat and said, this isn't right that a 15-year-old kid is without his parents and something that could, uh, may have been able to prevent. Uh, and of course, Noah fighting for a national uh, suicide prevention plan and as well a uh, secretariat in uh, the Prime Minister's office that would tend to mental illness. It just seems to be so prevalent now. Uh, we have to we have to get a handle on this. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, normally when we're talking to this guy, it's usually bad news, you know, and, and uh, he has to sort of try to soften it for us. But, you know, maybe because it's a Friday, I'm not sure. Maybe because it's the last day of summer. I don't know, but natural gas is going down. How can that be? Uh, that never happens, does it? Uh, yeah, it's supposed to be going down for Ontario consumers by October 1st, uh, but why the, de- the decreases now, considering the past two quarters, there have been increases. To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs, a critic, uh, energy a- analyst, and, of course, GasBuddy.com to find out more, GasBuddy.com. Dan is with us now. Dan, thanks for uh, taking the uh, time to join us today, and it's a positive occasion nonetheless. It is. I mean, it, when do you ever hear that your price of any type of energy is going down? Although, in truth... Uh, we haven't seen with natural gas prices uh, that have remained below the $3 uh, MMBTU. It's a big word for the way in which they measure uh, natural gas. Uh, going back at least three, four years. So it's been a fairly good year. Um, we saw prices moving up uh, January till about uh, April. And then it started this sort of small, gradual decline. And it's been pretty much there, uh, I would say, at least going back to last May or even June. So the prices that we're seeing, which reflect what happened in the past three months, have generally seen uh, a lot more production of natural gas. Americans in particular are doing very, very well. When you hear of shale production, we always often think of just oil. But in fact, for us here in Ontario, a good amount of our natural gas that no longer comes from Western Canada, although a lot of it does come from Alberta, through something called the main line. Uh, that's the one that we'd like to turn into a crude line, send it further east to the Maritimes uh, to service refineries and opportunities out there. The Americans have, uh, through a shale that extends pretty much from, well, mid-New York all the way back to uh, to uh, Ohio and further south almost into Tennessee. It's known as the Utica and Marcellus Shales. And between the two of them, they've been able to produce or at least furnish uh plenty of uh, natural gas for the markets right now, and that means that uh, more supply means, uh, even with demand remaining somewhat robust, uh, you know, there's a benefit here, and the benefit continues to go in favor of consumers. So finally, we're starting to see that reflected, at least for the first quarter of what will be, uh, you know, uh, the first several months of uh, of colder weather as we head towards uh, Christmas. So this is all due to production being up and basic old supply and demand? Yeah, I mean, price for natural gas has been fairly weak um, over the past couple of years, and supply is very high. 
Uh, it also happens to be very close to us, just around the corner. Um, most of our natural gas uh, is injected into the ground and places, stays at a place near Sarnia called Dawn, as in to wake up in the morning, D-A-W-N. Uh, those levels of injection have been pretty high. Uh, the drawdown wasn't so great last year. Uh, if we recall, we didn't have quite, uh, we didn't really have a cold winter. And that, I think, has uh, meant that the stockpiles of natural gas continued to be, you know, fairly healthy. And that's one of the main reasons why, uh, you know, consumers should have expected. I would have been very surprised if they dinged us with a, an increase. There's all sorts of wonderful ways in which one can justify these things. But the regulatory board has looked at the market and looked at the fundamentals and said, yeah, you know, we are going to get a decrease. However small, it's an important one. And it, uh, it does signal that at least the end of 2017 won't be as expensive, despite, uh, of course, uh, additional costs such as, for instance, uh, the uh, often unknown effect of the carbon tax being placed on or cap and trade, if you will, on uh, on our heating bills. Uh, so is there any pol- any political involvement here at all? This is There's no politics in here? No, none. It's actually, this might be for some, and it would be the wrong message to give, uh, what a regulatory system does. It basically passes on the market over a three-month period. Um, and when we're dealing with you know commercial use and heating, uh, natural gas, of course, can also be used in terms of uh, producing uh, high-end styrenes, chemicals, etc. Uh, but it does suggest that uh, what we're seeing here is a true reflection of what has been going on, I would say, for the past couple of years, robust uh, shale drilling in the U.S. is leading to benefits for us here in Ontario. So it's unfortunate, of course, we don't do that here in Ontario because we do have some of that shale under us. But uh, for now, uh, the American market is uh, well supplied. Uh, there are really no disturbances. We've had, as, as I mentioned, a fairly cold, warm uh, winter and, and, and very decent spring. So that allowed uh, for a massive build in, in, in production of uh, natural gas. And that's also why we're seeing this uh, much overdue uh, decrease. We had an increase last uh, last quarter, uh, sorry, two quarters ago, um, and that uh, I think for a lot of people was somewhat grating. But that reflects what happened three months before that, which was a pretty big spike last January. Why are we not seeing uh, natural gas used more in transportation, specifically with cars? Oh, there's just so many options and opportunities. But natural gas conversions, propane, uh, there are a number of. I think we have a we will have a mix of, uh, of of fuels in years to come if we haven't already. But I think natural gas is probably best used in in, in commercial bulk pipelined environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the uh, choice, obviously, of uh, consumers where we can get access to um, uh, to uh, the infrastructure to bring uh, and deliver natural gas. It's also become uh, a main choice as an alternative to coal-fired plants. The province, of course, and municipalities have worked very hard towards uh, ensuring that uh, you know natural gas-fired plants become the alternative, although I think some are now starting to say, hey, we've beat the coal, now we're going to, you know, because uh, natural gas at the end of the day is a cleaner, but is nevertheless a fossil fuel, let's go after that. And there are some uh, some out there that are musing, uh, musing today that they we should be shutting down natural gas. Uh, we've heard that from time to time, which, of course, would be absolutely fundamentally insane and dishonest, but that's mm. only my own opinion. Um, we have heard people mention that in the past, uh, but I think that's really the fuel of the future from a residential and commercial side, not so much in transportation, given the uh, diesels, uh, g- gasoline, electric uh, hybrids tend to be the uh, the, the real driving force these days. And not everywhere in the world has natural gas. So although LNG, which is pretty big, we hear a lot about liquid natural gas, compressed gas shipped around the world, the U.S. is by far and away ahead of Canada on that. We've just lost another 
major investor uh, here in Canada uh, uh, that uh, Nexon, which was uh, taken over by a Chinese company uh, a few years back, has decided to pull its uh, its stakes out of the LNG projects in British Columbia. That's the second major one because, of course, natural gas is uh, is is inexpensive, um, plenty of it around the world, and of course the regulatory environment in Canada for moving any type of project is uh, is so difficult, it's almost impossible to do business. Uh, it was a, a while ago, uh, Premier Wynne uh, announced that she was going to, uh, on a push to try to get natural gas more into rural areas. Obviously, uh, you know, you run a line in, the more people you got feeding off it, the more cost-effective it all is. Uh, yeah. With rural areas being more spread out, it's tough to get lines up there. I often thought it was kind of ironic that, uh, she was going to gasify the north, um, considering that they've been using clean uh, electricity for all these years that they just now can't afford. So we're, you know, that we've priced clean electricity so high that now we're, we're, we're making them use fossil fuel, which seems like an odd, uh, an odd uh, solution to this. But does this, with prices stabilizing and even going down, does this uh, mean that there's more chance that those lines will be built? Perhaps, but I mean, we have to look at the big physical problems with with sending uh, natural gas into regions that are, you know, found in the Canadian Shield. You can't put a pipeline in rock. Um, Good point. Uh, yeah, I'll give an example. Uh, if I look at Peterborough, Ontario, for instance, where mm-hmm. north of that region, uh, I know I have family relatives up there, up to a certain point where you have decent soil, loam, et cetera, they can, they can bring in the, the lines. However, once you start to hit... Uh, you know, places like uh, Bob Cajun, Buckhorn, et cetera, they can't. It cannot go any further. And so the alternative, by the way, isn't uh, an, uh, an expensive one. Propane has been around for some time. Mm-hmm. It's considered a very cheap fuel. It's uh, abundant. It, it follows the price of natural gas almost to a T, uh, except that it has to be transported, and there's some inefficiencies as far as what happens when it runs out. But generally speaking, I think it's a great idea, except that in some instances, you may find that uh, it's uh, you, you might be able to get a bulk terminal for natural gas in a given community, but it's getting out to the small homes that might be in the uh, rural parts that make it uh, physically impossible to do. Uh, I was going to ask you about other fuels. Uh, you brought up propane. Uh, we've seen it fluctuate uh, at times, too, in the past. Uh, where does it fit into this whole equation? Well, it's, it, most of the propane uh, that we use here in Canada is based on the markets known as the Conway market and it's also uh, Bellevue which is Mount Bellevue which is in Louisiana and that tends to be the spot market for propane and it's pretty strong right now in other words it's uh, it's uh, it, it, much of it is due to uh, LNG markets where Gulf Coast US when it isn't subjected to hurricanes sends a lot of traffic out to worldwide to send extra LNG and propane so it's a robust market, but it's uh, it is probably as affordable, if not more affordable, in some instances than natural gas. Uh, the general, you know, the concern there is we haven't seen propane as a problem for Canadians since 2013, and that's when the uh, Natural Resources Canada oversold Canada's inventory of propane to uh, a lot of very desperate farmers in the U.S. Midwest who had run through some real problems of drying their grains around this time. Uh, back then, and uh, we wound up with a serious shortage, which caused propane prices to skyrocket. Like we're talking uh, tripling of the price. That's not likely to happen now. And again, that market has corrected itself dramatically. Uh, I'm not seeing I, there is going to be an upward push for propane and to a lesser extent natural gas, but it won't be extraordinary. It won't be like we saw back in 2009, 2010, when propane prices were hitting four and five dollars 
uh, per MMBTU. That's not likely to happen this time or per, per gigajoule. I, the, the, what I'm now seeing is stability between 250 and 310 looks like the price going forward. You know, you might get an increase during the winter months, which is understandable, and a decrease come the summer months or even the fall. Uh, natural gas uh, set to go down October one. When would it? When would we see another price correction here? Whether it goes up or down or stays the same. So it's done quarterly. So every four, every three months, you will see a, a price, uh, a declaration of a price adjustment. That would mean that your next one wouldn't take place October, November, December until January first. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, at that point, uh, we will have to wait and see what these months here look like. We've had some disruption in the U.S. Gulf Coast. There's no doubt on natural gas and other production that may have a bit of a blip. But I'm still seeing natural gas remaining, you know, in the 2.95 uh, to three dollar range. Uh, it's likely to go up perhaps as much as five percent uh, between now and say the end of October, perhaps another ten percent then. So we could be looking at a ten or fifteen percent increase come January 1st. But we, we still have to look forward and see what's going to happen over the next two to three months. I, that I can't predict very well. Uh, Dan, can't let you go without talking about gasoline. Uh, obviously, hurricane season in the south. We've seen uh, some horrendous storms go through in the past uh, couple of weeks. How is this affecting prices? Are they starting to stabilize at all? Well, they are. I mean, I've done two interviews this morning in Florida and in uh, South Carolina and Georgia. Um, actually, it was uh, three of them. So, and all of them have, uh, they're still concerned that prices for fuel remain uh, about 45 cents to 50 cents a gallon higher. We're not seeing that here in, in Canada. The spike that we saw, which was a total of 19 cents a litre before tax, has now come down by at least, I would say, 14 to 15 of that. Um, we're not yet seeing you know, the full total benefit of the decrease, but there is still um, about 10% production disruption in the U.S., and that's keeping a premium on gasoline. Not a serious one, but it is still noticeable. Uh, all things being considered equal, uh, if we had not had Hurricane Harvey and the disruption, we'd be looking at paying somewhere in the order of about a dollar eight to a dollar nine, rather than a dollar twelve to dollar fourteen that we're seeing pretty much around uh, the Golden Horseshoe. As we've talked about before, a lot of the time when these things go up, especially when they go up in leaps and bounds like they did with this uh, natural disaster, uh, they don't come down all the way. You know, if they go up 20 cents, they'll come down 15. Are we expecting the same thing here? Yeah, they rocketed very quickly. I mean, gas stations were told by refiners uh, and suppliers, hey, it's going up, uh, uh, you know, four, eight, uh, and three. So it went up in the span of four days. It went up uh, 17, 18 cents a liter. Um, And, of course... As prices go up, it has the effect that uh, I think economics starts to kick in. Uh, less people use fuel, so fewer people buying gasoline means that uh, retailers are left with gasoline uh, at a much higher price. In other words, the replacement cost of that gasoline will take a lot longer for them to go through their 50,000 litres. But I think we're behind that. That's over a week ago, week and a half ago. Uh, prices tend to come down much lower than they go up for obvious reasons. In Canada's case, uh, the uh, and, and I think Scott, you and I talked about this two weeks ago uh, here in Ontario. Uh, you know, 40 miles uh, southwest of Hamilton, uh, you'll see a little refinery called Nanticoke. It's not producing gasoline right now, and we're seeing, uh, you know, they've gone through fall maintenance, which is what they had expected to do, not knowing, of course, that there was going to be a pretty significant crunch. That's one of the main reasons why prices are still pretty stubbornly high. We're not producing enough here in Ontario to meet our own domestic needs, especially when we have unforeseen events in the U.S. and events like maintenance of some of our big refineries here in Ontario. So that's 
likely leading to a five cent premium, and that explains very directly why we're seeing prices a little higher than we should for this time of year. Uh, you know, even with uh, without the effects of Hurricane Harvey. Uh, obviously, we're still in the midst of the hurricane season uh, in the United States. Uh, what about future storms? The fact that it's been bad so far, places getting hit again. Uh, do we do we see still for a, a couple of yeah. months of instability here? Yeah, instability. We're, we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, I go back to folks that say, "Well, how do you know about these hurricanes and its relationship to uh, to fuel and commodities prices?" Well, Katrina came showed up at the end of September, early October. It's the season. Two thousand five. Um, so, you know, hurricanes can and will, uh, the season continues right up until the beginning of November. We're far from being out of the woods yet, and uh, it really depends on the currents and the number of circumstances that are conducive to these uh, to these uh, hurricanes. Uh, I think we're still probably due for one or two before the season's out, and that would uh, put uh, this year up uh, with where we traditionally see hurricane seasons. Every 12 to 13 years, we get bad ones, 92, 2005 blip there in 2007, then nothing since 2007 really to talk about other than Hurricane Sandy, uh, which was a you know Category 1, even a tropical depression. It's where it hits, and of course, the amount of uh, infrastructure, the presence, the density of human you know uh, interaction in those areas that are one of the main reasons why we are seeing what apparently looks like far more devastating hurricanes, devastating in terms of cost, but... Uh, you know, you're building into areas, Houston being a good example, where 50 years ago you would never have built in floodplains. Now you are, so you can imagine the damage is, is ongoing. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic and energy analyst. GasBuddy.com to find out more. GasBuddy.com. Uh, Dan, of course, talking about everything gaseous. On that, <laughs> no- <laughs> on that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note, have yourself a great weekend. I will, and to you know, all your listeners, Scott. All right, you, you take care. Dan McTagg, uh, of course, uh, gasbuddy.com to find out more. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.